there was this movie that was out a couple years back called God on Trial. Uh, God on Trial. And what it was was a group of men, uh, Jewish men uh, back in the 1940s that were in Auschwitz uh, during uh, Nazi-occupied Germany. And so during that time, these men were brought in, and as they were brought in, they were, they were uh, brutally uh, beaten. Half of them were split up. Half of them were executed. Half of them were uh, just, just mocked, ridiculed, beaten. Everything that we now know that was the Holocaust uh, happened to these men. And so while they're in their room, they decide, these Jewish men uh, who have followed the Torah, followed the law, decide we are going to bring God on trial. Because they start to look around at situations and they start to think, okay, our situation looks very bleak. It doesn't look like God is forced in this moment. It doesn't look like his promises have still stand, stand true. It doesn't look like uh, um, uh, God cares about this right now. It doesn't look like his plan is going forward. And so we're calling him to the stand. And the whole movie is them just accusing God that his provision isn't good. His promises aren't true. And his plan isn't playing out. So that's the movie. They put God on trial, and they accuse him of these things. And so the reality is, I, I think about that movie, and I think about me, and just my, my general story. Uh, and oftentimes, if I'm honest, I, I put God on trial. In fact, any single time that I'm, uh, to be quite honest, anxious, stressed, fearful, anytime I mistrust God's goodness or his love or his kindness or his gentleness or his forgiveness uh, towards me, anytime I doubt his word and don't follow what he has for me, anytime I, I, I see my situation playing out and I go, God, where are you in this moment? I'm putting God on trial and I'm accusing him of not providing the way he's promised, of his promises not being true and of his plan not playing itself out. I would imagine that if I'm uh, that I'm not alone in this room on that. Uh, I remember in college, I would go out and uh, I was struggling through a season of depression in my life and I would, I would go out and I would drive just until like I couldn't drive anymore and then I would park and I would literally just yell at God and kind of shake my fist at the Almighty because there are situations playing out in my life that I go, God, this does not make sense. God, you say you, said you were for me, but, but I got my case against you right now. There's some hardships in my life, and, and I don't get how all this is playing out. If, if you are for me and not against me, if all things are working together for good for those who love you and are called to your purposes, then do I not love you enough? I'm like, I thought we were on the same team, God. And I remember like, constantly praying that prayer throughout college, and it's often even now still this natural bent in me. And so I would imagine that, that there's men in this room that kind of feel that way at times. They're going to God, like, like you said these things, like you said you were going to provide for me, but I'm looking around and I don't see that right now. You, you made certain promises towards me, but I'm looking around and I don't see that right now. God, God you have this master plan and I, and I want to trust that, but I, I, what's happening? And so we start to question God's goodness whether or not God cares for us, whether or not his word can be trusted, whether or not he's just and fair. And we do what these men in the movie did. We put God on trial. We put God on trial. So why do I start with that? Because that is where we're at in the book of Romans. If you remember back, Romans 1 through 3 is, is mankind being on trial, and mankind on trial uh, is deemed collectively condemned before God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so mankind, chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, uh, man stands collectively condemned before God. 
But then in four through eight, God steps in and he starts making these promises to mankind that he's for them, not against them. Uh, that, that he will save them from the punishment of sin for those who have faith in him. That, that he will save them from the power of sin for those who walk with him. That he will ultimately save them from the mere presence of sin as he takes those that have trust in his goodness and his promises and the gospel of Jesus Christ and redeems them and spends eternity with them. That God has made these amazing promises to his people. And yet there's a question that still looms. God, you've made promises like this before to your people in the Old Testament, and all those promises haven't been fully fulfilled. And so now in chapter nine, 10, and 11, God is brought on the stand. He's brought to trial. And there's a series of questions that the people begin to ask God. God, do you really care about us? God, can we really trust you? God, are you really just? Because we're looking around right now, and we're not so sure. And so this morning, God is taking the stand. And so as we look throughout this morning, God is going to take the stand, and we're going to see that we look a lot like the people in Romans 9, that we have every reason to trust in God's provision, his promises, and his plan in our lives. We have every reason to trust that. And yet our natural tendency is to doubt him in these so we're going to see that play out this morning. And so as we look throughout this chapter, we're going to see what we call just the gospel of promise. The gospel of promise. That God's people can trust God's provision, God's promises, and God's providence. And so if God's on stand, the first question that's going to be asked to God is, God, do you really care about us? God, do you really care about us? And God's going to answer that with his provision. With his provision. So you might have noticed Romans 9 kind of kicks off with, with Paul's anguish over those around him not knowing Jesus. And Paul has this, this internal struggle that those that should know Jesus don't know Jesus. And he even goes as far to say, hey, if I can be cut out of the family of God so that you can be brought in and grafted into God's family, that you would know and trust the goodness and kindness of Jesus, I would do that. And that sounds amazing for Paul, but the reality of it is he's just quoting Jesus that Jesus would say, hey, I have been cut out so that you would be brought in. And so Paul here is, is echoing the heartbeat of Jesus that he would go through every length imaginable so that people would know and trust him. And the reality of it is that God has offered these people every reason to know and trust him. Picking up in verse four, it says this, for they are the Israelites uh, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so this group of people, the Israelites, had every possible reason to know and trust God. They had, look at it, they had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, and on top of that, they had the patriarchs. They had the, and from their race, according to the flesh, of all things, they had Christ, who is God over all, who is blessed forever, amen. God has given this group of people every reason to know and trust and follow after him, and yet they miss it. And they begin to rely on their own provision instead of God's provision. And so as I look at these people, I mean, this was me growing up. I grew up in a Christian household, had Christian parents, went to a Christian church, celebrated Christian holidays, had Christian grandparents. They were, they were Methodists, so that's bonus. Um, I grew up in Texas, so that's got to mean something. My parents voted Republican, 
you know? So that's gotta, that's gotta count for something as well. Uh, we went to church at least twice a month unless it was raining, you know? I had every reason to know and trust Jesus. I heard his name often growing up, and yet the reality of it was I kept on thinking that, that, that the way God wanted me to, to act in front of him was not trusting in the provision of Jesus, but rather trusting in my own performance, my own platform, and my own provision in life. And so because of all these things, because I grew up in a Christian home, because I went to church growing up, I started to believe that God like, needed me on his team. But like that, that, that God was so impressed with how I performed in front of him, so much so that if I died and went to heaven, like the gates of heaven would open up and God would just start slow clapping me in, you know, like, he's here, people. Um, man, uh, man, finally. I mean, everyone else in the world, I mean, he, I mean, look, my son was good, um, but uh, you are a close, close second. Not by much, not by a much different Jesus number one, but you are that close number two, my friend. I, I made it hard. Let me be honest, I made it hard. A lot of those fools didn't get it, but you get in here, right? I mean, that was the thought process. Why? Because I looked at my own performance. I go, man, I'm a good kid. I have a good family. I have a good home. And therefore, God must think that I'm good. And therefore, God must love me a little bit more than people who aren't as good. So I don't really need this Jesus. And the truth is, um, my heart still bends that way. Even after walking with Jesus for, for about two decades now, I still rely on so many things that aren't of God. And I look to all these things and go, God, do you love me now? Do you love me now? Do you love me now? I've done this, I've done this. And because I, because I don't, fully believe that it's only from him, I start trying to find it in other places. I start to try to find my meaning and validation and work. I start to try to find um, my, my comfort or my, my, my true rest that God offers. I try to find that in just comfort and leisure. I, I look to so many other things that try to give me things that God has said he would give me. And the truth is when these things let me down, I start to look back at God and go, well, God, do you really care about me right now? I start to ask the same question that's being asked here. And so for all of us, day by day, we have every reason to know and trust God's provision in our life. God has given us his word to guide us. God has given his spirit and his son to empower us. God has given his people to encourage us. We have every reason to know and trust in Jesus. And yet time and time again, what do we find ourselves doing? We look to so many other things to give us provision in our life. And then when those things inevitably let us down, we shake our fist at God and go, God, do you really even care for me? You see, God is on trial right here. And the question is, do you care for us? He has provided everything we need to know and trust him, to have life and life to the fullest. So we as his people are called to trust him because God's people trust in his provision and not our own. So from there, there's another question that's asked. If God's provision can be trusted or if God, can, if God really does care for us, how do we know that, we can be tr that, that he can be trusted? 
How do we know that his word can be trusted? When he says something, how do we know that, that what he said is valid? Because I look around at my life sometimes, I go, God, you've promised this, and I'm not seeing it play out. And so the way God responds to that question is his promises. His promises. It says in verse 6, it says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants of Israel belong to Israel. And so there is this conversation that was happening of going, okay, God, your word seems to have failed because there are certain people that you've made promises to, and those promises haven't come to fruition. And so when God answers that, he answers by restating his promises. So, so what's happened is God's promises have not failed, but we've, been, we've had this tendency to add to them. We have this tendency to hear God's promises and then to kind of have some subclauses to them that we like and we attach to them. And so in verses 6 through 13, God takes two instances where the Jewish people begin to add to the promises of God. And so he says, hey, you think that as long as your parents are, are believers, that you're good with me. Well, let's look at Isaac and Ishmael. He says in verse 8, he says, it's not as the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Hey, it was never about your parents. It was about you trusting in the promises of God. He said, hey, you also think that it's about your performance, like what you do that gets you right standing before me. You've added to the promises of God. Let me remind you of Jacob and Esau. And in verse 11, he says that, if you remember Jacob and Esau, it says that though uh, they were not yet born or had done anything good or bad, that God called them in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works that they did, but because of him who calls. You've added to the promises of God. You've taken the promises of God and said, hey, God has said, hey, by faith through grace alone, I can come into a right relationship within, within him. And what we've done is we've, got, we've added to that. We've said, okay, but also... As long as my parents are believers, I'm good. Or, or, or if I'm, I perform enough, then I'm good. And God takes these things that the Israelites say, hey, God, you've neglected on your promises. And he goes, no, I haven't. You, you've added to my promises. My purposes stand unless you start adding to them. My promises do not change unless you start adding to them. And so what's interesting is what the Israelites did is something that we always do. We constantly are doing this. God promises us something, and we start to bank on, on, on something that's kind of like that, but, but tweak to our purposes. And so let me be very clear. God has never promised you your dream job. God has never promised you a certain amount of money in the bank. God has never promised you a certain amount of kids. God has never promised you that your wife won't get cancer. God has never promised you that you'll have a certain amount of money in the bank or a certain amount of leisure in this life. And yet we hear this idea that God is gonna take care of us and we start to add these promises to him. And then we shake our fists at the Almighty when those don't come to pass. See, what God has promised us, I will not leave you nor forsake you. You might have a bunch of money in the bank or you might be looking in the red, but I will not leave you nor forsake you. God has promised that I will, he who began a good work will complete it. You might be struggling with sin right now, but the victory belongs to the Lord. God has promised that he will be with you, he will not forsake you, and that his love for you cannot be changed. And so we add to the promises of God. So God's on trial here. Can what he says be trusted? Well, so far he's batting a thousand. And I don't think that's going to change. 
And so we can trust him because God's people trust in the promises of God, not their own. So the next question then is that is God just? Is God fair? So God's going to provide, that's great. God's going to uh, um, enact his promises, that's great. But can we trust that God is actually just, that he's good? You see, there's this false belief that said God is, is not good because if you look in the passage earlier, you kind of see, okay, in him fulfilling his promises, it kind of seems like he's, he's, he's saving some people and he's not saving other people. And so that doesn't seem fair, God. And so even y'all, I mean, you read it this week, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and you did not like that. And you avoided that. Because it's a hard passage to get our mind around. And even if you go to the extreme or unpack that word hated and understand it as that idiom of to prefer, it's still hard to look at that and say, hey, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated because we don't like that because we have the concept in our own minds and our own hearts that we deserve heaven. We deserve eternity. That we are naturally bent to be good and right next to Jesus. But the reality of it is the more you understand your own brokenness, and the more you understand the, the beauty and the strength and the power and the perfection of God, the more you see that phrase, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and you're not questioning whether or not God is fair, but rather you're saying what Spurgeon said, that it's not difficult to see how God hated Esau. It's actually more difficult to see how God loved Jacob. That's what's weird. That's what's hard to grasp. And so God answers the question, hey, are you just? God answers that with his providence, with his providence. Verse 14 says it this way. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? He says, by no means. That was the most emphatic way to say no. And so God is on the stand. And what God is doing in this moment in verses 14 through 18, he's gonna begin by just kind of stating a reality. Hey, if you're asking if I'm just, let's just state reality. Let's remember chapters one through three. All of you have sinned and rebelled against me. So let's just start there. And then what he does is he shows his two different responses to sin. And in verses, um, and the first response is this, it's undeserved mercy. In verse 15, he says it this way. He says, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy on, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion or good works or good deeds or going to church enough, but on God who has mercy. And so this is a quote from Exodus 32 and 33 in which the people of God all rebelled against God. They build the golden calf, begin to worship this thing and say, this is our God that brought us out of Egypt. And they begin to celebrate this God. And so Moses comes off the mountain and he sees all people rejecting and rebelling against God. And God's proper response in that moment was punishment. And yet God does not punish everyone. He punishes some. And when God unpacks why, he says, I am God and I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy upon. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion on. Everyone deserves punishment. And it is by my grace and by my mercy that I am bringing some out. So God's first response to sin is undeserved mercy. His second response to sin in our rebellion is a directed destruction. Directed destruction. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, 
that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. And so a few chapters earlier in Exodus, you see Pharaoh and over and over and over again, God is giving him options to repent and to let God's people go. Pharaoh has been oppressing God's people and God is stepping in and saying, I'm saving my people to come off and worship me so that my name would be known amongst the nations because you're harboring them as slaves. And so he keeps on saying, let them go, let them go, let them go. And throughout Exodus, it says that Pharaoh continues continuously harden his heart towards the things of God. And then it starts to weave in the reality that God is then putting a seal upon that. It starts to say, then God has hardened his heart as well. This is what Romans 1 was all about. God is giving them over to their own brokenness and their own simple desires. And so instead of just cutting Pharaoh loose, what God does is he directs Pharaoh's destruction towards his people's good and his own glory. And so if Pharaoh was flying a plane, instead of just letting it crash, God's gonna steer it in a way that brings his people the most good and himself the most glory. There is a directive destruction. And that's why it summarizes it this way in verse 18. So the summary is God will have mercy on whomever he wills and he will harden whoever he wills. God has two responses and only two responses to our sin. Either undeserved mercy or a directive destruction. All people deserve the latter and yet God's mercy and kindness reaches down into our brokenness and mess and he calls some out by his mercy. We run into the flames and God pulls some out. And so those that are saved have only God to thank, and those that perish have only themselves to blame. And so I remember there was a time whenever I was, um, it was probably a 10, 15 years ago now, and I was sitting with an older guy in the faith, and I, and I was reconciling just more and more how much I had let God down, and I had this mindset of how much I had sinned, and it was just becoming very apparent to me in my life. And so I began crying, because I'm, I'm a crier, so that's not new, um, but I began crying. And in that moment, as I was crying, this older man just kind of put his arm around me and just goes, hey, Derek, what do you think you, you deserve f- for your sin? And I, in all humility, just go, nothing. I deserve nothing. And I just was very clear. I deserve nothing from God. And he just put his arm around me. And he goes, hey, no, that's not true. You deserve hell. And yeah, like, that's what I started to think. Like, I was sitting there crying. I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I deserve nothing. He's like, no, you deserve hell. And I was like, wait, what? Like, like, that's your pep talk? You know, like, like, like in that moment, I was expecting him to do what I think we, a lot of us do. They're like, hey, no, 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 God loves you. He's for you. Man, you're, good. you're being too hard on yourself, buddy. And yet he was doing what over and over and over Scripture does, that every single time in Scripture somebody says, hey, woe is me, I'm unclean. Get away from me, God, because you are holy and I am not. God doesn't go, no, buddy, you're okay. Get up, bud. He goes, yeah, that's about right. Like, this is, this is your assessment of reality is true. And so what he was saying in that moment is, hey, you deserve hell. The, everything else that you get is undeserved mercy by God. You see, we have this idea in our culture that basically says this, that, that I deserve heaven. We believe that we're entitled to eternity and that hell is for the place for the really bad people 
and we have to do something to get us out of heaven and into hell. We are all running towards the flames. And God in his mercy is pulling some out of the fire. We deserve hell. And God has made a way for heaven. And so what gives God the right to rule us this way? What gives him that right? Well, two reasons as the passage continues. First, God is God and you are not. Verse 19. So you will say to me then, then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Okay, I want to pause here because think about the mindset of our culture that we think that we deserve heaven. And so when we're told that, yes, we have sinned, yeah, we get that. Yeah, we deserve punishment. Okay, yeah, we get that. But not all people get mercy. Okay, whoa, 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 no. I don't like that. Yes, I know I've sinned. Yes, I deserve punishment. But I believe I'm still entitled to heaven, God. And, so, and so, so how dare you do this towards me? How dare you let me go to hell even though I'm running there? And so right here, there's this impliedness of going, hey, well, how does he still find fault? Well, bro, you're the one running to hell. The fault is not in God, it's in you. And yet, look at what he does here. He says, why does he still find fault? For you, who can resist his will? But then it says, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over his clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for dishonorable? I'll be honest, when I read that, I had that cultural lens, we deserve heaven. And so I go, hey, that lump is at least morally neutral. And God is going, okay, you're honorable, you're dishonorable. But that lump is Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's God's mercy that grabs a bit of it and begins to mold it and change it to his glory. So God is the potter, we are the clay. And so if you don't like this, that's fine. Just go get your own universe, okay? It's not that hard. Just, just go and find your own universe, create your own universe by speaking it into existence, and then, and then be all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, and then come send your son to die on, on, on these willful, uh, ignorantly rebellious, unrighteous people's behalf who are going to spit in his face, that he will die, raised to life, proving that he was God over all things while he is simultaneously sustaining all things. It's okay. Just, if you don't like God's rules, just go get your own universe, and then you can make whatever rules you want. But until then, you remain the creature. God remains the creator. He is God, you are not. The second reason that he has the right to rule over us this way is that God is good and we are not. And so verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath to us has made known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory and for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even to us who he has called, not from the Jews only, but also to the Gentiles. And so the potter analogy here actually is a reference back to Jeremiah 18, 1 through uh, 10, in which, which God shows this individual, Jeremiah, this potter, and this potter is looking at this clay, and, 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 and this clay has gone bad, and yet God, and yet this potter is saying, hey, I can mold this one way, and I can mold this another one, and that potter has the right over that clay to do what he will, because he is the creator of that clay. And yet God looks at Jeremiah and says, hey, do I not have the same right over my people? to create in some vessels for honor and glory and for others uh, uh, vessels that are already deemed for destruction. 
Do I not have the right to steer them in a way? And yet he says in that, that if, if that lump would turn to me, if, God, if the people would turn to me, if they would see me as who I am and what I've done for them, and they would trust in my goodness and my gospel and my grace, then I would make for them a, a vessel of honorable use, and I would do what the latter part of this verse says, that I would show them the riches of his glory and his vessels for mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles also. And so there's this great story with, with Michelangelo and the Statue of David in which, uh, if you know the story, Michelangelo went to a, to a rock quarry and he found this, this lump of marble that every other artist had disregarded. And yet he picked that one. He didn't have to. He chose to. And he began to shape the Statue of David. And nobody looks at Michelangelo and says, how dare you not make David's of all the rocks. They look at David and they see something that was once a lump and yet a creator got involved and molded and shaped for something that was beautiful. And that is our response and should be our response to God. And so God is on trial. Is he just more than just? Because all of us deserve punishment. And yet God has stepped in and brought mercy because he's God and he's good. And so we can trust him because God's people trust in his providence and his plan, not just their own. So last question as we close. Who can be God's people? If this is all a part of God's providential plan, then who can be God's people? Well, we see it in the rest of the passage that God has swung open the gates of heaven for all people, for Jew, for Gentile. And it says in verse 30, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Why? Because it was a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as that is, if it were by works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Jesus. As it is written, behold, I am laying a, a stone in Zion. That's Jerusalem. Uh, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, the real tragedy of putting God on trial is that we already have. When Jesus came, he was God's ultimate provision promise, and he was the providential plan of God. He was the centerpiece, and yet we did not see him that way. We saw him as a stumbling block, and so we cried out, crucify, 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 and yet this stumbling block three days later would be shown to be the savior of the world as he didn't stay dead and rose from the grave. And whoever by faith puts their hope in him and him alone and sees him as that provision, as that promise, as that plan of God will not be put to shame. So who are God's people? It's, that, it's those that trust that Jesus is God's provision. Jesus is God's promise. Jesus is the centerpiece of God's providential plan. And all those that trust in him will not be put to shame. And so in the movie, God on Trial, it ends with the Jewish people 
saying that we need to keep trusting God. And it's supposed to be a really um, triumphant moment. But if you really know your Bible, you know it's not. Because they are trying to trust in a provision, in a promise, in a providential plan outside of the person of Jesus Christ. And every single time, we, we doubt God's goodness, doubt God's justice, doubt God's word, doubt that God cares for us. We are doing the very same thing. When Jesus came, he showed himself that he is God's provision, God's promise, and the centerpiece of God's providential plan. And so we can trust him in any and all things because that's what God's people do. 